Welcome to Equestrian Movement's Best Do No Harm podcast. I'm your host, Katie Boniface, co-founder of Equestrian Movement with Sarah Gallagher. We work with horse riders who want to build a stronger bond and a deeper connection with their horses. In our first Do No Harm podcast, we discuss with other industry professionals how to work with horses to firstly do no harm and secondly support their mental, emotional and physical well-being throughout the training process so that we have horses that enjoy learning and ask to be ridden. Each episode, we discuss the different influences our training can have and how we can improve our horses' overall athleticism, soundness of mind and body, and emotional fortitude, while strengthening and deepening our relationship with our horses. Each week, I will endeavor to bring to you a new episode on horse riding, training, handling, and husbandry, or an interview with other industry professionals to help you address where and why you might get stuck in creating the beautiful union of dancing souls that is the equestrian sport. Are you ready to kick off today's show? Let's get started. Thanks for joining us for episode two of our little chat with Ainsley from AB Equine Therapy. Don't forget that she's been kind enough to give us a discount code for her advanced therapy course. Uh, Make sure you jump on the link below to check out both the course and the discount code to receive this offer. Without further ado, let's kick off the rest of our conversation with Ainsley. Uh, The experience of the horse is very disempowering you know we can come into this relationship with the horses and they're giving us these like big terrifying behaviors and we can think that you know the horse is in the position of power in this situation but like really we are in control of everything that happens to them we're in control of where they live how they live who they live with whether they get turned out whether they don't what they get fed how they get fed when they get fed whether their feed is appropriate how they get worked when they get worked like we're in control of everything that happens to them and then we also don't listen to them when they're trying to tell us that they that they have a problem and so there it's like there is no way for this not to escalate to an emotional state for this horse or to just completely shut down and dissociate because they have zero way of communicating the support that's required to help them with what they're experiencing and so all we get to see is the behaviors that are the end result of not having the power to communicate what's going wrong with them it's one of the things that we do in the school is like the first lesson that everybody gets is the front end bites the back end kicks be careful (laughs) that's a good one that's a good one then the second lesson they get is about uh consent and choice with the horse so we have a way of asking for consent to approach asking for consent to touch and then that de-escalates uh a lot of the situations where the horse would actually bite or kick because now the horse is able to give you permission to be in their space and permission to be in your bubble and that's another one of the lessons that I really enjoy teaching is I'll have these new students and I'll just like go stand really really close to them like that level of closeness where they're like oh why are you in my personal space why are you in my bubble but we do this to the horses all the time we just accept that they should accept us in their personal Mm -hmm. space and And, you know, when we're on their back and we're in the saddle, we're really in their personal space. So they really have to, like a lot of the tension that you can feel, um, you know, when you're riding them and when you're on their back, it's just like 
not having a level of acceptance of us being in their bubble because we don't have a good enough relationship with them where they actually want us to touch them. Like if you imagine that experience happening with a human, you know, if you imagine that experience with yourself, like how much you can tense your body, embrace yourself when you've got somebody in your space that you haven't given permission to and you don't feel comfortable there. Like we really have to take into consideration that we take all of the permission from our horse away from them by just doing these things to them without permission and and so then we do have to deal with the emotional fallout of them experiencing those things that we would not accept if it was happening to us yeah no a hundred percent agree I think in those situations you you typically have two popular outcomes which are one an escalated unwanted behavior from the horse or B, you know, a learned helplessness, which is when you have those, like a lot of times, unfortunately, like the riding school horses who just have the dead eyes and they're just, oh, they're so, they're so happy. They tote their kid around. Are they, are they, (laughs) you know, so those are the, the main two. And then I guess sometimes you might have third option, whereas maybe you have a horse that just isn't as affected by those things. They tend to just kind of go along. So, you know, I have met those. They, they a lot of times they turn, they, uh, what do they like? The little geldings, right? A lot of people yeah. will say, oh, this gelding just happy existing. And they're kind of, you know, <laughs> not super choosy or picky about things. So, but I mean, uh, on my end, um, obviously working with more problem horses and horses that have physical issues and pain and tension and things like that going on, I, will often see, you know, the escalated behaviors that are like the horse trying to tell you something, trying to tell you the pains there, the injuries there. I mean, I've seen it so many times and even in my own horse, you know, um, which we all have those experiences, I think, right. Where we look back and say, oh, you know, I wish I, I would have noticed this sooner. I wish I would have like recognized things, but even in my own horse, Charlie, um, you know, he's not one to really refuse jumps. He was always like decently happy to just kind of like a go-getter, right. Going to do things. So the day that he was refusing jumps, I thought to myself, like, this is abnormal. This is an abnormal behavior. Something's not right. Um, he also just felt strange under saddle to me, but everyone else, oh, he looks fine. He looks fine from the ground. The trainer's on him. Oh, he's fine here. I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you a crop. I'm like, I really don't feel comfortable. Like I don't want to ride with the crop. I'm just not interested in that. Um, okay. You know, watching then getting the trainer to ride the horse. Right. So then he's riding the horse, trying to get the horse go over the jumps. Like maybe it's a rider error. I'm not too big in my britches to say, maybe it's me, (laughs) you know? So getting someone else to ride the horse, same, same problems persisting, you know? So it's like, I mean, there was an issue there. There was an issue. He ended up having, um, it was a suspensory, medial suspensory branch, some desmitis. So a little bit of irritation there. So, but the the thing is most people would push through that behavior, right? And if I would have gone down the path of listening to that trainer and saying, yep, let me just grab my 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 big spurs and I'm going to grab this crop and we're just going to get the job done. You know what happened? I mean, it would have been it would have been a full on lesion in the suspensory. But but I was like, no, we're going to stop this because something's not right and I'm going to wait until we can figure it out. 
because I'm listening to the horse, you know what I mean? And so we caught it. It was just irritation, but a lot of times it doesn't play out that way, which is really unfortunate. It's like, oh, my horse is having a behavioral issue. Let's school it out of them instead of listening to the behavioral issue and getting to the root cause of the problem. That's just one small example. I mean, I have a ton, I have a thousand, not with my own horse, but that's just one with my own horse. And I've worked with a lot of clients, you know, that I'm sitting there and I'm finding these tensional patterns in the horse over and over again. And I'm thinking this should be gone by now. Like something else is going on. So then, you know, I say, Hey, let me watch him under saddle. Let me do this. Let me do that. You know, and I start pulling out all these other, you know, processes and things we can do to try to get to the bottom of it. And then, you know, I might suggest like, okay, well, have you radiographed this? Have you done this? And then it's, it always comes out that there's, there's a physical problem. I mean, it's, I can't name a time that we haven't actually discovered something or it's ended up as I've stopped working with the client because they had no interest in trying to find out. And I hear, you know, a month later, oh yeah, so-and-so's lame with blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, yeah, that's what I, you know, we were trying to, I was trying to tell you, (laughs) but, and and I don't say that to toot my own horn. I I say it because it's true. It's the process. It's the formula of things. If you have the escalated behavior and you do not follow the the breadcrumbs <laughs> for yeah. lack of a better term, you don't follow the breadcrumbs to find out what's going on. Like it will show up bigger and louder. And it, at that point, then it's like, you got to, you're starting from square one, right? Cause now you've got an injury and then you have to rehab and you got to start all over versus finding it, addressing it. And then the, the second piece of that is prevention. So what are you going to do to not have this just happen again? Because these things, there's a pattern that leads up to it, whether it's, you know, uh, a shoeing issue or like a, a saddle issue, the way the horse is ridden, um, a conformational flaw, like a, a defect. There are all kinds of things that attribute to it. So if you don't solve that piece of it, it's just going to happen again. I mean, I can't tell you how many horses I see with reoccurring injuries a lot of times just conformationally because this horse cannot withstand X amount of workload confirmationally. Like they're just not going to ever be sound. Like their body can't keep up with it. I mean, it's like, think about if a person has, you know, a bum knee or a bum hip, you know, is that person going to go out and be like a, what do they call them? Ironman champion or whatever, (laughs) you know, where they do all the, whatever it is. No, probably not. I mean, can that person like speed walk and, and have that be their sense of cardio instead of doing like all these crazy things? Yes, probably. But it's kind of like, you see what I mean? There are different levels of, of workloads and things that the the horse can withstand even mentally, not just confirmationally, Mm -hmm. even mentally. I truly believe that there are some horses out there mentally that just, that just aren't, you know, it's just not for them. And, and I think we all know this as owners, right? We get a horse and we're Oh, they're much happier doing this. Oh, you know, they got a new owner. They're much happier doing this. So a lot of times I think people do recognize that part of it because, you know, they can see that the horse is happier, but a lot of times I think people do just push them to do what they want. Cause Mm -hmm. I mean, it's unfortunately money and ego are kind of the, the root of that. Right. Yeah. Oh, we spent all this money on this horse. So, yeah. you know, they're going to have to do what we need, what we need them to do, what we pay for them to do. Yeah. I, I had a student come to me a while ago with a cow horse wanting to learn how to show jump. And I was like, why, why are you jumping her? She's like, not got the confirmation for jumping. She's like, not bred to jump. Why are we jumping? Like go chase a cow. And so she went and chased cows and they haven't looked back. They've had so much fun together, but she was just like so grumpy about show jumping and fences and they had so much resistance and so much, so many issues mm. in their riding because 
you know, you, you just, you have to make sure that the horse is doing what it, it's bred for. You know, it's nice that things like we can rehome standard breads after their racing career and uh, they can do some dressage and jumping, but we have to really appreciate the limitations of the confirmation to be able to truly, you know, excel like they can for sure excel, but it's significantly harder for them to do the work than if they're bred specifically for it. It's nicer for the horses to be able to do something that they're body finds easy to do rather than taxing to do. Yeah, exactly. I think, um, you know, it's, it's nice to like cross train and things like that, but to an extent, right. I mean, if you don't have a horse that is physically comfortable doing something, there's no reason to push them past that point, um, to exert that level of discomfort on them is, is the ego, right. That's your, yeah. your, it's a little bit selfish, yeah, like they can all standpoint. do poles and like little crosses and whatnot, but asking yeah. them to jump a meter when they're like <laughs> completely downhill built because they're supposed to be chasing cows is just like so taxing on them mentally and physically. Like let them do things that they're bred to do. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think there's definitely horses out there who their mentality and just physically are, are better suited for other things. Mm. So um, we have our performance issues. Let's um, let's get some bigger spurs. Let's get some bigger whips. Let's get some stronger noses, yeah. stronger bits. Yeah. Let's drive them harder into the contact. Let's put this yeah. on and drive them into a frame. Yeah, I, I see that. A, I see that one a lot, though. I mean, I see like a lot, like a big. I don't know. You have to tell me if it's the same in your area. But a big thing here is, you know, especially with we call them the green beans, like the young horses. A lot of times with the green beans, it's like, oh, we're we're quote unquote teaching them a frame. So you know, we'll put on all the training devices. So like side reins and get those bad boys nice and tight and crank the neck down. Or, you know, we have like the German martingales or whatever they are. Um, they're very creative. Let me tell you that they, the neck stretchers and the things that attach here and attach there and, you know, all the, all the things. And yeah. we'll go put them in a round pen. That's not that big, mind you. Yeah. Um, I was reading, I was part of a, I'll derail for a minute, but I was part of a, was watching a webinar and it was talking about how large people thought their circles were and you shouldn't be doing anything smaller really than, than a 20 meter circle when you're asking for like more mm-hmm. than a walk. Um, people are like, oh yeah, I'm doing, you know, when they were asked what their, what they estimated their circle was, it was at least 20 is what they thought maybe larger. And when it was measured, when they're actually measuring like where the line was, it was much less than 20. So that's just something to keep in mind for everyone out there who's lunging and more and doing more than a walk at the lunge. Um, make sure your circle is big enough, but, um, so anyway, so the, the green beans, you know, that's a big thing. They'll put on all the training devices and just make them go round and round and round. And it's like, listen, first of all, let's, why are we only asking for a circle? Let's get the horse to do it straight because when the horse is on a circle, we've got all these other balance issues at play. And like, yes, from a sense of control on our part, it's easier to train in a round pen, I guess in some respects, but the circle, I just, I really have a big issue with the circle. Um, and I, I just, and obviously the training aids too, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of because it, you're not teaching a frame. You're not teaching quote unquote collection or true engagement. Um, I mean, if you're lucky, you'll get a, a horse that has a breed that, you know, and they're breeding that they kind of carry themselves a little bit more correct in the first place, if you're lucky. Um, but I got to tell you, like these training aids, I think are really the bane of 
a lot of <laughs> my existence in terms of like going in and trying to clean up the aftermath, right, uh, physically on these horses. But it's it's really not good. It's not good. It's not teaching the rider. I mean, it's not teaching the horse. And it's just not from a physical standpoint. You're not building the proper musculature to increase the longevity and the soundness of that horse's movement and, and you know, their in their job and their career, their work level. I, it's just not the answer. Yeah, 100%. So. so, you know, when we're looking at what that is trying to correct, just like it's trying to get them into this aesthetically pleasing picture of the rounded neck. But if we're, all we're doing is we're looking at the neck, then, you know, the neck is the last piece of the puzzle. It's not where we start. We need to know where their balance is, where they're weight bearing through, whether they can relax into that posture, whether they can reach out through their shoulders and then they can switch their neck off to come into that, um, you know, aesthetically pleasing frame. But the horses, you know, they just get rushed through it. I had um, some horses, this is why I don't do braking anymore either. It's just like the expectations of how the horses should be working in such a short period of time. But I had um, clients that wanted to have, uh, their green broken Arab competing at nationals within four months, being able to hold a frame. Yeah. I was like, I can get her broken in and going, but she's not going to look the same as these other horses that have been out competing for years and, you know, have been doing this training for years and years. And what we're really looking at when we're talking about taking that, that tension and that brace out of their body, like that tension and that brace is them balancing. And so if they, if the way that we're riding, if the way that we're putting our hands in their mouth, if the way that like just their exposure and their experience to riding, you know, their muscle development and whatnot is conducive to them having to brace and they don't have enough balance to do the work that we're asking them to do. You don't, if you think about yourself and you had like a little monkey on your back and um, they were telling you what to do by pulling a piece of metal in your mouth, when they tell you to turn, you're not going to softly and sweetly just like follow that rein and turn. You're, you're going to pull against it. You're going to twist your head in the opposite direction because you don't want to fall over. And if you get to the point, like for me, like get to the point where I can actually get that to happen then they do just fall over instead because there's the reason why the brace is there is so that they can hold themselves up and so that they can balance against us and so that they can balance themselves. And yeah. you know, that's really what we're looking at with our, you know, our training pillars is that as the horses get, and that's what, you know, if we look at like air quotes collection, air quotes, like frame, frame them up or whatever, all we're talking about is their ability to balance and stack their posture correctly. And the, the better they get at balancing and stacking the posture, the m- more maneuverability they get. And so with the more maneuverability, that's how we do like those higher level movements. And if, you know, if all they're doing is just trying not to fall over, then you are going to have a horse with its head in the air resisting you. And then yeah. putting the draw reins on, putting, pulling their head down, cranking their neck like getting them breaking away um they're they're just you're just creating that false flexion that false frame where they're still braced through the shoulders and on the forehand and braced through the neck you can even see this in like the higher collected movements is that the horse is still on the forehand and has a dysfunctional hind end because it hasn't actually learned how to balance yet because all it's doing is trying not to fall over 
bracing against the rider and what the rider is doing to pull it off balance in the first place. Yeah. 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 I think there are a lot of horses that you can even see based on the way they move, like if they've been trained or if they are regularly worked in these aids sometimes, I mean, not all the time you can't tell, but, but a lot of times you can, um, when you were talking about, um, the aids being kind of the structure that's like holding the horse together and they're kind of bracing about that. It kind of triggered the thought process of like, it's the, it's kind of like, if you think about a human attempting to do an exercise, like if you asked me to do like, I don't know if this resonates with you, but like, like a pistol squat or something. Like I can honestly tell you that I don't have like a ton of leg strength or core strength or enough to, to engage in that movement properly. So like, how would that movement look for me? Not good. If I had somebody (laughs) holding me structurally there to do it, like, I mean, maybe I could get it done, but the reality of the situation is I'm going to be compensating with other muscle groups or, you know, like kind of twists and turns and, and the integrity of what I'm doing um anatomically is not going to be the same as if I was structurally doing it the way I was supposed to and building the muscle groups and targeting the muscle groups that you're supposed to target with that exercise and that's what people don't understand that's the piece that's missing when you put these kind of like you know what I guess band-aid solutions on the problem when you're like hey we're just gonna we're gonna strap these side reins on this young horse and they're gonna learn how to hold themselves well the real I mean the reality of that is no like that's not that's not actually gonna happen but okay yeah but um I mean, I know when I ride, like having, um, Charlie is an off the track thoroughbred. So, you know, a lot of thoroughbreds tend to hold themselves a certain way. And that way is not always like long and low or loose or neutral. It tends to be very like, you know, hot and like their heads up and they're hollowed out through the back, but not all of them are like that, but a lot of them are. Um, so for me, for him and the type of horse he is and having the race career and and kissing spine and all of that, I mean, I'll take a neutral spine all day long. Like I'm super happy with that. I'm really happy with the neutral spine stretch down, like, like get it, put your, you know, let's, let's, and even like oscillating between the two neutral spine and then stretch down, then you need to come up and rebalance a little bit. Great. But I'm just not, I mean, that's what really gets me about the draw reins is like, what are we even trying to achieve? And I see them in the show ring, like the warm up rings at the show all the time. And I think a lot of it is control. It's a because they have a horse who, I mean, you're in the, the warm-up ring with 20 other horses, you know, and you're all trying to, to get something done. So I think the draw reins do add an aspect of control. Um, but in terms of training, like I just don't, I do not support that. I mean, and then you see people a lot of times they'll come back with, oh, I use them really loosely. Well, if you're using them so loose, then what's the point of using them at all? Because then you're just having the horse in a nice, relaxed, stretchy frame and if they're happy doing that then what do you need the the reins to keep them there if they're so loose you know what I mean so I just I have a lot of I've been pretty vocal pretty open about that on my socials but I think a lot of times you know they these aids are used incorrectly and it's not and it's a deeper rooted issue it's a more um it's a biomechanical issue it's a training issue it's a it's a muscle issue at the end of the day the horse needs to build the musculature to hold themselves there i think another thing sorry i'm going on a little bit of a rant but i just popped up in my head um Another thing is the time, the length of time we are just expecting horses to do things is very strange to me. It wasn't strange to me 10 years ago, but it is now. It's (laughs) like, 
why, you know, cause I didn't know any better, but why are we expecting horses to not only under saddle and in training, be able to do these things for so long, but also just in general, why do we expect a horse to stand on a cross side patiently for an hour while they dry off or, or whatever it is without pawing, without getting frustrated with that? Why do we expect that? That's crazy. I don't want to stand somewhere for an hour. Don't leave me, you know, like what, I have no entertainment. I'm literally standing here. Like yeah. what it's, so anyways, it's just one little example, but more back to the training side of it, the riding side of it. I think that a lot of times we expect horses to execute things a lot faster and for a lot longer than is what is realistic. I mean, especially when you're teaching something new that I personally believe that training session needs to be very, very short um, because you're just, I mean, it's it's something new. It's new for that horse. You need to break that training session down into tiny digestible segments, reward, and keep it short. I mean, if if my horse, even now, like being a horse that knows how to ride and, you know, it's not like he's a three-year-old or four-year-old who's, who's just had a saddle on his back. I mean, if that horse gives me what I'm asking him to do, I'm not going to make him do it 10 times. Yeah. You know, which is how I was always schooled. It's like, okay, mm-hmm. do that line again, do that line again. And it's like, mm-hmm. well, what? okay. But does the horse, is the horse learning anything from that? It's just, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I think a lot of times the expectation is, is a little off there for us. Especially if we want to consider like optimizing functional movement and for long-term like the longevity of the horse is like you know as soon as the body starts to fatigue with us drilling the behaviors then they are going to go into the compensatory patterns and so then we're just training the wrong muscles it's better and if you yeah if you don't have somebody on the ground who can recognize that either then it's like you're not gonna be able to make that call like oh okay the horse is done he's done now like he's not doing it correctly anymore yes yes that's it yeah and then, and then you end up, you know, training the wrong muscles and, and then we end up with the soundness issues further down the track. And I think we also see the same problem with how quickly people want to progress into like the next stage of training as well as like, oh, yep, I've got that. What's next? Whereas we, we really need, and they get super frustrated with the plateau, but we really need to like stay at that level for a period of time so that everything like kind of equals out and balances out because not all muscles, the, the whole body doesn't adapt to that new training exercise at once. It's like, yeah, the most responsive part of that individual horse adapts first. And that's when you can kind of see the horse starting to do that new exercise and so that people are like oh yeah I can do this new thing now what's next after that but we really need to stay on that level and wait for like the rest of the body to catch up wait for that weak side to catch up and kind of equal and balance itself out before we move on to that new skill same thing as like you know if I go to the gym and I'm doing weights and I'm like, yeah, I can do squats with this 30 kilo bar, but all of my power is coming off my right leg. Let me put some more weights on because I can do that now. And then all of my power is coming off my right leg and say, oh, I can do that now. Let me put more weights on. And then all of my power is still coming off my right leg because I'm not training. Yeah. Yeah. And so then like, I'm really going to get stuck because I should have waited at that, you know, 30 kilo weight for my left leg to catch up for, you know, my balance and my posture to catch up so that when I'm, you know, setting that new harder task, it's my whole body that I can start recruiting and, and developing that way. And then that's how we see the horses, you know, get so crooked 
drilling 20 meter circles for prelim, they're never going to be able to get into collection because um, they end up, you know, developing so crookedly that now we can no longer kind of bring that body together into a place of collection because they've dropped the the pelvis is dropped and rotated and all of their weight bearing is on one shoulder and all of the lift is in the other shoulder and the spine is like completely and there's no potential for that body to progress and that right there that part of it is where the body work comes into play too because along with like realizing where the inequality is and where maybe the weaknesses are that's when you're when you're strengthening and you're eliminating the tension are like really 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 important so a lot of people miss they miss that like gap of opportunity. So when you are training and you're, and you are starting something new, if you notice the weakness, then it's like, okay, what can we do to strengthen wherever we're having the problem? And let's take this opportunity to also alleviate the tensional patterns and really get in there and work the fascia, work the musculature, work the, you know, the fascial system and like, just get all of that out. So we're having a blank canvas, you know, the first sign of that, the first sign of an asymmetry or a weakness or something, that's when you need to get in and do that. Right. And it's a lot of times, unfortunately, it's not done till later on. Um, and you already have the weakness, then you have a huge asymmetry and then you've got, you know, potentially an injury that's on its way or brewing because this horse has not been carrying themselves correctly. Because like you said, they were, they were not given the proper time to adapt or somebody just ignored it and kept pressing on. So I think that's like, you really touched on a huge piece of the puzzle there. It's something that's really, really important. If you can, and that's honestly what a lot of times what I'm trying to teach people is it's not just about learning the techniques to address the pain or, you know, horsemanship wise and training positive reinforcement. It's not just all about that. It's about recognizing where these asymmetries and weaknesses and the precursors, the red flags, where all those things are, like knowing what they are and knowing what to do with them. Because that's really what bridges the gap between, you know, preventing injury ultimately, which I think is what we're all trying to do. I mean, in my world, I see a lot of it. So I know that everybody would love to prevent injury in their horse, keep their horse sound, keep their horse comfortable. Um, and get as far as they can with them or achieve their goals with them. Right. That's, that's the the dream. So that's such an important part of it is what you were describing. Thanks for joining us for episode two of our interview with Ainsley from AB Equine Therapy. Make sure you jump on the link below to get the special discount offer for her advanced equine therapy course. And until next week, happy trails. If you're loving what you're listening to on the podcast, you might be starting to recognize that trying to control your horse through submission-based training is the worst way to ask your horse to look after you. If you're working with or riding horses, you know how unpredictable and sometimes scary they can be. Unfortunately, most struggling horse riders make the mistake of thinking they can physically control their 400 plus kilo fur babies by moving their feet or spooking them into responding with flags and join up. Without giving your horse a reason to care about you and look after you, you will most likely end up with a horse that is disconnected at best, shut down or explosive at worst because they can't communicate their needs with you. Especially if you are already scared, worried or nervous handling your horse. That's why we've created our new free online training experience, Building a Connection with Your Horse. This is how I've gone about creating safe horses for beginners, no matter the breed or previous handling experiences. 
If you want to learn the secret sauce behind developing safe horses that care about you and look after you without trauma triggering training methods, register for our new training today at www.equestriummovement.com forward slash connection and I will uncover the three big mistakes you might be making if you're trying to build a relationship with your horse and how you can start building your horse's trust and confidence in you as a leader worth following.